Even the women out commands and always beating the system. here. Oh, I wish you could see this. From here, you can see everything. Here, in Fort Enong, Bali, there's over 1,000 soldiers and even more in training. This is a military logistics center and also a refuge. It's also the perfect spot to see all the ships that are coming towards this land. Ships that bring delicious spices and exotic delicacies. Ships that also bring... Invaders! Bring the Admiral, quickly! Uh-oh, they've summoned the Admiral, guardian of the Ache Kingdom. This ship is in for it now. Hmm. The flag they wave is of the Dutch Kingdom. Spice traders trying to pass without permission. Soldiers, to your battle stations. Soldiers, we are the guardians of the Ache Kingdom. These ships that sail towards us bring more of the same invaders who have already taken so much from us. Will we let them pass? No! Will they succeed in their threats against us? Admiral Kamala Yahati, the first woman admiral in the modern world, is going to battle to stop the invaders. The invaders at this time are the Dutch. A Dutch spice trader recently discovered a faster way to get to Asia, but there were a few crucial things he did not understand. Number one, there were people culture, and entire kingdoms that existed beyond Europe that were fine as they were. Number two, these people who do not know you or trust you also do not take kindly to being insulted and invaded. (laughs) 
savages. They do not understand civilized ways and should be treated with blunt force brutality as often as possible. And this guy, Colonelista Hartman, he practically began the spice trade. And he also terrorized and brutalized native peoples savagely. His initial voyages were a nightmare for humanity. Wholesale massacres, robbery, rapes. Ugh, he was committed to a level of savagery that the Admiral could not abide by. He sails here, enters our water without permission, then insults our culture. This will not stand. Crush them. Crush this entire fleet. As for that loudmouth monster, leave him for me to handle personally. My ship is besieged by savages. Help us. Oh, I was only trying to bring you civilization. You should be thanking me. I was trying to help you. We don't need your kind of help. No Dutch. No Portuguese. No English ships will pass these shores without permission. Come correct. With diplomacy and negotiation, respect us. Or prepare to meet your end. After the Admiral killed Cornelis and then proceeded to crush a whole bunch of Dutch fleets... Will invaders pass us? Never! These people have no claim here. We will teach them whose land this is. The Admiral gained a reputation for being the Guardian. European royalty learned that they had to contend with her if they wanted to access Asia for trading. The Dutch had to apologize and send emissaries to begin negotiations. And the Admiral met that delegation at the shore. And when the English wanted to begin trading, These savages must be shown civilization. (laughs) Majesty, we must tread lightly. Be as diplomatic as possible. The guardian of the Ache kingdom is not to be trifled with. Why, do you happen to mean Admiral Kamaluyahati? Yes, your royal highness. I respect a woman who runs a tight ship. I will write her a letter and send you as my emissary to begin negotiations and to make nice with her. The fate of the Empire depends upon you. And when Queen Elizabeth's letter arrived, along with the emissaries, the Admiral met them at the shore. 
The Admiral died years later in battle with the Portuguese and was buried in the village where Fort Enong Bali is. Enong Bali Village, also known as Village of the Widows. You see, this was no average fort and, and these were no average soldiers. Every soldier was a woman or child who had lost a relative to the violence of the invaders. Along with the Admiral, these women watched over their kingdom, choosing to become soldiers, in addition to grieving mothers and daughters and sisters and wives. The Admiral and the Enong Valley Fleet watched over their kingdom then, and I suspect in many ways, they still do to this day. Brave people, gals, guys, and everybody in between, what is making your heart sing today? Have you checked in? Welcome to another episode of Vanguard of the Viragos, where we revisit the heroines of human history to learn from this hidden archive of treasures. I'm your hostess with the most S, Chelsea D. I am currently in Washington, D.C., and I want to uplift that I am on the ancestral lands of the Nacotchtank, Anacostan, and Piscataway peoples. I want to uplift all the lives and all the blood that has been shed on this land, for this land, for longer than any of us can imagine. Slight accessibility check-in. I'm feeling very energized, doing really well. Um, yeah. And um, figuring that out. One second. One second. Yeah. Actually, we're expecting a delivery, so there's that. <laughs> This is the portion of the show where I chat with a special guest. I just like to tell stories. I'm a creative who is addicted to diverse representation and storytelling, for I think the stories that we tell mold the people that we become. But my guests on this show are folks who are actively studying, preserving, and I would argue making history. These are the real heroes. And today's hero is Sanchita Balachandran. Welcome and thank you for joining me. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. It's really yeah. you know, wonderful to be part of this. Wow, I'm so I'm, I'm I'm so glad to see you. Um, I've this is this is really our initial meeting. I contacted you via email and <laughs> here we are <laughs> and it's it, I'm really grateful to be able to talk with you today and make these connections throughout history same maybe one day we can actually meet in person when when we're allowed to do that you know when when outside opens again you know what it's not a maybe when outside opens again I owe every guest on here a coffee <laughs> quote me on that take that down okay that's happening. Uh, so how are you doing? How are things, how, how are things where you are? Um, you know, how are you feeling today? Uh, I think, um, gosh, it's, it's a strange day, as you know, uh, between what's happening actively in Washington right now um, with uh, 
Congress, but it's also, you know, it's a beautiful day. It's sunny. Um, my family is, you know, well and healthy. And I just want to say, you know, whoever's listening, I hope you're all staying healthy and safe. You know, I'm really interested in, in your insight into what you've learned about human activity and behavior in the past that could maybe, you know, give some insight into what what we could do with what we're dealing with now, you know? Gosh, the only thing I, I feel like I know from all my work is that humans are messy, messy beings. Ah, <laughs> yes. And you know what? That's a great reminder. That's a great reminder because I do have this kind of idea of 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 the classics of of history as some place of purity that there was like some pure human experience and some some yeah this 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 type of clean slate where everything was simple and 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 there was a formula but it's it's actually a really great reminder that no we're still trying to figure out <laughs> how to share space, how to be together, how to deal with migration, how to deal mm. with the weather. I mean, yeah. I mean, I think that's helpful. So yeah, I think we should definitely talk about the mess. Um, well, I, I look at all these things that people made, you know, thousands of years ago, and there's everything from the kind of perfect craftsperson who never cut a single corner and made these incredible things that are almost perfect and unimaginable, you know, in terms of their execution. And then you've got the blobs and the screw ups and, you know, Mm. the the Mm -hmm. literal cutting of corners. And I think for me, it keeps me very grounded that humans have always been themselves. And, you know, we, we can't kind of come up with an explanation for how people X did things because within people X are lots of human beings who had complicated feelings. I mean, it is such a, it's, I mean, what you're saying is so beautiful because it speaks to one of, one of the things I'm really passionate about with this podcast is bringing awareness to the diverse body of voices who are researching, who are preserving, who are um, recording the histories of, of a diverse body of people. You know, there, there wasn't this um, time in, in ancient civilization where there was just one group of people, this monoculture, you know, Absolutely. this mono race, or, uh, you know, it was always diversity. There was always a, a bunch of different types and, and, and everything. And I guess my question, one of my questions is like, why is that so difficult to celebrate? You know, why, why, why is it more threatening difference and mess than, you know, which is a huge philosophical question. I, I I mean, I think it's, it's a really important question to ask, you know, why does it scare us that things are always more complicated? I mean, I think on some level, maybe it's a kind of, Um, fight or flight, survival, Mm -hmm. you know, tendency, maybe it's a biological thing, we just need to know the answer, we just need to decide whether this is threatening to us or not. But I think, to me, what I'm always really kind of excited by is when you have people asking really different questions, you know, I think you're like, people come at things with their, their own perspective, their own kind of embodied experience of the world. Mm -hmm. And that just means they're going to ask really different questions. And I always find it so um, exciting because, you know, 
I've, I feel like so many of these stories have been told the same way over and over again. And it's frankly boring. At some mm. point, you're just like, is this all there is? And then <laughs> someone comes at it with a completely different perspective and suddenly it comes alive again. And mm. I think that is the, you know, the, the promise of more diverse storytelling, that something that feels so kind of staid and easily explicable is suddenly just broken open into all these other questions. Oh, I lo- and I love this. I love this image of breaking something open into a whole lot of other questions because, um, you know, we spoke a little bit about this earlier, but I was introduced to Medea and Antigone, you know, these, these plays from, you, you spoke about this, this, this place of embodiment and, and what my teachers did in high school and in, in undergrad was they really made these classics they broke them open with all these questions about, well, what does Antigone teach us about um, protest and civil disobedience? You know, and that for me, I, it was so foreign to think of the classics as having this real present day impact in your life. And so that's really kind of where I got my start. And yet at the same time, becoming addicted to this language and the scale and the epicness and the, the, <laughs> the human essence that these writers were getting at. And yet at the same time, as a young black actor feeling like I can't, I'm not a part of the class, you know, I, I, people don't think of me when they think of Medea or Antigone, I'm not supposed to be, um, enjoying reveling in finding myself connecting the, these these classics to to my my culture and my experience and so i but that's I, unfair you know i, I agree like, it is completely unfair because to me it's a disservice i mean what is the point of actually making you know any kind of art right and i think this for a lot of us makers this kind of gets to the core of why bother putting yourself out there because you're always thinking, well, who's going to want to know something from my perspective, right? Who am I to kind of interject my perspective into this world of the arts in capital letters? And I think that's what's so interesting about, you know, reading anything or visual art or experiencing any kind of art form where it comes from a very specific perspective. But what is really extraordinary about it is if you've made it in a way that invites engagement anyone can participate, right? I think it just requires that the person interested in participating being willing to kind of take that step towards you uh, in the same way that the person who made it had to kind of put themselves out there. And, uh, you know, again, like I would would have never thought in, you know, if you told me five years ago, I'd be fascinated by um, ancient Athens in this moment where, you know, of course, democracy is born, but at the same time, there are these really virulent anti-democratic things happening to anyone who wasn't a male citizen of Athens. Yeah, I would have said, well, that has nothing to do with me, right? Like, this is just too far afield for me. um, Because why do I want to know about that, right? And it's interesting, I was reading Medea a couple of years ago, and I have, you know, two young brown kids, right? And, um, And I usually work early in the morning, and then, you know, we're having breakfast before school, And they were asking me, I mean, this is pretty rare, but they were asking me what I was reading because I had the book out. And so I, 
kind of gingerly was was explaining the story of Medea. And both of them, you know, they're there with their cereal. And one of them's like, wait, she kills her kids? <laughs> you, you know, sorry, spoiler alert. She, she kills her kids. Um, but, but both of them are like, you know, eating their cereal. And they're just, first they were horrified. And then I tried to kind of build some context, you know, not trying to explain either way what I... I mean, I think that's the point of the play, right? It's not clear. I mean, everyone is is implicated, is complicit, right? And and my younger one, who was six at the time, you know, she's listening to some of the rhetoric that comes out in the play itself. And she said, oh, you mean like what our president says sometimes? Mm. And, you know, I, I just think that this is where art can complicate and, and open conversations in ways that we don't expect. Mm -hmm. and part of the challenge is to be willing to be really uncomfortable in these moments where you're like, oh, I don't think a six-year-old should be hearing about you know, a mother killing her children. Right, right. Like that's really messy. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. really complicated and there's a lot of dynamics. And yet your child was able to make this connection, you know, across time in a meaningful way, you know, which just opens up again, cracks open the world into more questions of, you know, so when has this happened before? And are there any other instances of this? And, and, and I don't know, maybe there's a new passion that comes or a new obsession that comes out of tracking have a job <laughs> this obsession that leads to employment you know? <laughs> may, may your curiosity make you gainfully employed with health insurance no but i i mean i think this is this is the challenge i mean especially in this moment of you know incredible upheaval right that we've been living through with the pandemic with these i mean a violent insurrection um kind of the the ways in which we're seeing very clearly how so many injustices play themselves out, especially on non-white bodies, right? We have to have these conversations. And I think what I'm always kind of amazed by is when you have these conversations in really open ways, and, you know, again, I have, I have young, young children, I think they always amaze me in their ability to sort of you know, really, really sit with it and, and think through it, but also kind of recalibrate in a way and just sort of say, okay, well, what's for dinner? <laughs> you know, there's kind of like, we, we need to both think about the kind of practical everyday, how are we going to get through this? And how are we going to think about these big questions that have plagued us through time? You're yeah. right. Through time, like really feeling that, <laughs> really feeling the plague through time today. Yeah, plague. <laughs> no pun intended. No pun intended, but really, like, wow, we're still, we're still finding it. We're still finding it. Uh, all right, so let's let's dig in. What can you share a bit about um, your area of expertise? Uh, what period of history you study, and you know what drew you to it? Why why, why that time and or, or material culture? Sure. Um, well, can I can I stop for a second and just make a land acknowledgement? Because I yes, do, do that um, with, you know, anytime I speak. So I'm speaking to you from Baltimore, what is now called Baltimore. So we're not too far away. So we must make it possible to meet yes. at some point. 
Um, but I'm on Susquehannock land, ancestral Susquehannock land, but this is a place of gathering and stewardship for the Akahannock, the Piscataway, mm. the Lumbee, the Cherokee, and um, the Nanticoke people. So I'm wow. just very grateful to have you know, been able to call this place home. Um, so I've been here in Baltimore, uh, gosh, almost 12 years, and my, um, my field of expertise, I'm trained as an art conservator. And I specialize in the care and preservation of historic um, objects. And I specifically focus on ancient archaeological materials. And in my uh, regular work job, I am the associate director of the Johns Hopkins Archaeological Museum, where I steward the ancient collection there. And I do research on um, ancient objects from uh, mo mostly the region of the ancient Mediterranean. So uh, Greece, Rome, Egypt. Um, the ancient Near East. Oh, so cool! It's just so cool. It's, it's, <laughs> like, pretty, it's, it's pretty great. I really, I really <laughs> do love my work. I, I mean, as an artist, it's like, oh, somebody could one day take <laughs> care of my things. Uh, it's, <laughs> so yeah. that, that's 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 really wonderful to know. But this 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 word of um, stewarding, you know, it's such a it's such a robust word to me that it's such a specific um, word choice. I mean, there's a level of care and um, investment in the future survival of this thing that is implied by the word um, steward to me. What, 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 is, what does that word mean for you and, and how does it function in your work, your roles? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think, uh, because, you know, I spend a lot of time with other people's things, right? I think, <laughs> I mean, I think this is what is so um, hard to get across sometimes to people who aren't aware of how sort of museum people work. I mean, we spend, uh, under normal circumstances, so much of our time with other people's things. And I think, to me, that really brings up a very... Um, I don't know, sacred's not the right word, but a very sort of solemn, um, but also extremely joyful responsibility to, you know, make sure that these, these objects, these items, but really these kind of traces of people's families, their pasts, their histories, that they remain um, available to whoever might need to see them in the future. Um, and I think uh, I, you know, you also get to know things in really um, difficult to explain ways. I mean, they're they're familiar, you know, items. I'm kind of, yeah, I go and check on them. Even in pandemic times, I'm able to go in and kind of check on everything. And I think there's a really um, intimate relationship that uh, someone like me ends up developing with the items we are, um, you know, really lucky to care for. And I think the other thing that comes up with me uh, with this term stewardship is that of this is a really temporary position that I'm in. You know, I think given the history of museums um, as being very much, you know, embedded in a kind of colonial and imperial past uh, and given that museums really, you know, have been quite complicit in and, and benefited from white supremacy, it's really important to me to think about, you know, I'm, I'm a short term carer of these items and I have a certain kind of responsibility to make sure that they are available to whoever needs them in the future. And I think this is all the more important given that, you know, so many items were removed from their, um, their originating communities. 
um, often without consent or under duress. And so, you know, we just have to be very aware of that history when we're um, doing our work. Yeah. And I, I, again, I'm going back to this image of cracking things open and really challenging the assumptions of, you know, where these things come from, where these ideas come from, these institutions of being in museums, where does this come from? I I actually, I had a summer job at the National Portrait Gallery oh, wow. in Washington, D.C. It's about two or three years. Um, it was like an internship, a paid internship. And we learned all about just careers in um, a museum, you know, all the different things you could do. And at um, the National Portrait Gallery, there is a wing that is the art conservation wing, and they have these huge glass walls, and you can like watch people work on these pieces of preserving these pieces of art, conserving them. And it was, it blew my mind. And I was in high school at the time, it blew my mind that there was such a science, you know, that mm-hmm. there was like, the science of recreation, the study, it, it, it was a, it was a, it was something that, that was at the intersection of art and science and history. And I was amazed. And from then on out, I was like, I ha- I, I want to know more about <laughs> how, how, how do you even, how does one begin to learn about these things like what usually what was randomly your... <laughs> can you tell us a little bit about like yeah, what brought I mean, you to you know this is where like me hoping that my child gets gainful employment just kind of comes back <laughs> to smack me in the face because you know I'm an immigrant kid right so mm-hmm. my it was very clear from my early age that I was supposed to get a good job as a doctor or an engineer um, or at least that's how I interpreted it. And as a, you know, a very dutiful brown student um, who wanted to go to a good college, I took every advanced placement class my high school offered. And one of them was art history, which I had no interest in. Um, and what's really interesting is, you know, my, my mother used to work for the Indian government and she would take me to all these historic places in, in India or we would go to these very historic sites, like you know, temples for, for, for worship, and I never paid any attention to their antiquity or their age. Like I just did not pay any attention. I just thought it was a drag. Um, and then I took this AP art history class, and you know, there was um, Gerald Citrin. You know, thank heaven for Gerald Citrin, wherever you are in the afterlife. Um, but you know, he, he's sitting in his classroom and looking at all of this artwork and having kind of the, the code of how to read art explained, I suddenly realized that I was fascinated by this. And he really took me to the first museum where I was paying attention. You know, we went to the, the Getty Villa, which is the, the, the first Getty, the original Getty Museum. And I just remember standing in these rooms, you know, and there are these portraits of, of like English countrysides with these, you know, super white women with their rosy cheeks and their dogs and their horses. And I just thought, this has nothing to do with my life experience. And yet I want to be here. What is going on? And, you know, I went off to college with my very nice AP art history score. And I thought, I'm just going to take one art history class because, you know, it's kind of fun. And I need the requirement while I'm getting my pre-med requirements anyway, right? Mm -hmm. I have to do this class. 
Um, and of course, I got completely sucked in and I got an internship, a paid internship. And this is where, you know, wow. I think if you want more diverse people in the arts, you need to pay them in order to do this work at an early yep. stage because we can't afford it. We can't volunteer our time. I needed a job. Yep. Um, and that was when I first met, you know, museum conservators. And I thought, wait, I don't, I can still be pre-med. I can do all the science, but I can do the art and I can do things with my hands. And, you know, from then on, it, there was just no turning back. And I have to say, my, I, I told my mother I was going to be um, applying to grad school in art conservation, or I, basically I told her I wasn't going to be pre-med while she was driving on the freeway which you should oh. never do. Don't, don't break any news like that to a parent, you know, while in a moving vehicle. <laughs> but, but that was sort of it. I made the decision. And I, for, for a long time, I thought it was a crazy idea because, you know, being in the arts always feels extremely precarious, I think. Um, but, and people told me it's precarious. You won't be really able to earn very much and I still did it because I couldn't get it out of my head so here I am you know and that's one of the things that um I really love to hear from other from other creatives other other people who are thinking about history and time is what is haunting you because there does feel like a bit of haunting that happens it feels like a bit of um something following you some <laughs> some 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 question or some i don't know some do you have this feeling do you, do you ever feel like there's something pushing your your quest to learn more or is it curiosity you know what um i don't think i could explain it i just i was obsessed but it's funny you know i've been in the field now what over two decades and it's only been relatively recently that I kind of got confirmation that whatever it was that I was trying to follow, it, it makes sense now. So mm. a bit of a digression, right? So 10 years ago, I, um, I had the luck of getting a Fulbright um, fellowship. And I went, I went to India. I went back to India to research these, this, the history of how metals were conserved in southern India. And I was in this you know, museum archive and I see, you know, all of this correspondence about people who are studying these ancient bronzes, right? The same things I had come to study. And I'm reading through this correspondence and it was hot. It was, the reports were kind of boring. And I saw this name and I thought, huh, that's weird. You know, just, just little, like little thing in my brain. And then I turned the page and then a few pages later I went, wait, wait, wait I know that name. And I went back and it turns out my grandfather, my paternal grandfather in the 1930s and 40s was researching the same bronzes that I had come to research, you know, almost a century later. And nobody in our family what? knew this. Right. And there he was. I mean, he's thanked in some publications that I later found. And there he is doing the same work. And it was one of those thunderbolt moments where you're like, this is what I was supposed to be doing. And then I thought that was amazing, right? This, this explains it all. And then in February of 2020, I was in London. I had, you know, amazingly funding to do research in, in Britain. And I just happened to go to the British Library. Uh, and this, it helps when you have, you know, 
a spouse who's also like a similar nerd and and yes so we i i had known about my my maternal grandfather um and his title he had this title so i'm i'm a conservator my maternal grandfather's official title was conservator of forests okay so he didn't work in the in the art world but his title was conservator of forests and i knew his name obviously but i you know he passed away when my my mother was quite young so of course i never met him and in kind of doing a quick search and this is why everything should be cataloged and archived because we searched the british library and there was this note that a passport belonging to a person with my grandfather's name happened to be at the British Library. So I went to see this document and I got to meet my grandfather in the archive. Oh. Yeah. So this is, you know, these, and and he has the same title. And these are just these moments where you're like, is, am I, (laughs) am I making this up or was this all meant to be? And I think, you know, to find not one, but two grandfathers in an archive, you know, like, countries apart 10 years apart uh 20 years after you started your career you're sort of like okay i this is what i'm supposed to be doing i think that is that is glorious that is i mean wow i should have i should have brought some tissues over here (laughs) like i don't have any around me but um wow that that rocks on so many levels so many levels i'm I actually only recently began to really dig into archives, um, like like hands-on going through like boxes and having to wear the gloves and really digging in. Um, and it was at the Schomburg Center uh-huh. in Harlem, New York. Yeah. And I was, um, I put the gloves on, I was in a box and I actually saw the deeds of sale for slaves, enslaved mm-hmm. peoples. Um, and it was a transaction to like balance some type of debt or something and just holding that document yeah, and knowing that this is someone, this is evidence of someone's life. life. It's a life, you know? Um, and it was so precious and it's still, it just, it haunts, it, it haunts me to this day. It, 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 something, I don't know, something happened and I was like, I think archives are super important now. Like I, we have to protect them. We have to, we have to talk about them. We have to contribute to them. We have to make them. Um, so yeah, thank you. Thank you for sharing oh, that. Yeah. that was... I mean, if I can just say, I think what I've, what I've learned is, you know, like we all have really complicated relationships with the archive or the archives, right? All of these collections that have been formed under really difficult, problematic circumstances, right? Why, and, and it's interesting, having found my grandfather's passport, you know, I texted my family and, and none of my family members are in, in the museum or archives world. And their first reaction was, well, why is it with, with them and not with us, right? And I think, I think this really brought home to me the challenge of, um, you know, when you're in the position of caring, Right. And, and you might not have been the one that kind of perpetrated that first injustice or um, complicated transaction. But it just, I think, makes you that much more aware of how important your stewardship is um, b- 
because someone else will want that. Someone else needs that at some point. You can't say it's going to be next week. And this is where I think a lot of the metrics about, you know, museum visitorship and archive use are, they don't really kind of get at the power of the things we, we hold, right? Because someone will need that and it will fundamentally change their life. But how do you make that a statistic? Right? How do you measure that? Like <laughs> the the value of that. Oh man, I mean that's so wow. Wow. Isn't it okay. Good? Yeah. <laughs> that's just it's just it's... wonderful to work in things that, you know, feel like real. <laughs> yeah. Know? And and and, 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 and on so many different planes, you know, and I love those moments where it feels that you feel like, oh, that's why. I've been doing this and following this for so long. Like, you know, there, there, there are characters in plays that I have not written that live in my head and are constantly like, okay, so today, well, is today the day you're going to write us down? Because anytime now, anytime now, we've got some things to say, you know? Um, and so for you to be having this similar experience, but with objects, you know, is like, so glorious. What's the first question that, or what's the first thing that you think when you come into contact with, with an object that you're going to study? Um, well, I'm very lucky in that I get to hold things, you know? Um, and to me, the first thing is just the kind of sensory experience of holding something, right? Is it heavy? Does it fit in my hand? Um, you know, just, is it shiny? Does it feel smooth even through gloves? I mean, to me, I'm always immediately drawn to kind of the physicality of something and how a human being would have related to it. Um, and it's, it's just because I'm so lucky to to take that for granted. And, you know, in my classroom, you know, I always teach with ancient objects. It's really important that my students get a chance to work with actual objects. And I just love watching that, that first moment, you know, where students are so nervous about holding something because it's thousands of years old, but there's just that sense of real connection, right? Someone else held this in their hand 2000 years ago. It, you can't, you can't kind of, capture that it's just such a like a again it's like a thunderbolt moment like okay this is happening it's Um, real it's here absolutely and then of course you know I'm really fascinated by ancient technology how did people make all these things and uh, I mean I'm not a I'm not an artist in the sense that I don't make physical objects but I have studied them long enough that I know that nothing is made easily you know, even the kind of blobby pinch pots that you might have from antiquity, and there are a lot of those too, right? Um, just just thinking about the amount of, of work and expertise and resource that had to go into, you know, even finding where the clay is going to come from, making even the pinch pot, firing it, you know, where are you going to get the fuel from? Where's the water coming from? You know, there are just all these different moments and, and expertise that go into making even a very simple thing. So when you look at some of these, you know, some of these incredible things that are left over from antiquity, you just, I I find myself always marveling at that kind of, um, you know, again, mastery is not the right word because I really dislike that word um, for all of its connotations, but just, just the awareness 
the knowledge, the kind of lineage that people also came with, you know, how long had this been in their families or in their communities that they knew how to do this, that kind of know-how, but also just the creativity, right? The desire to make, even if you're making something to sell, to live, um, it's, it, there's, there's a real sense of purpose to it and intention. And I think that that sense of ancient human intention to me all, always gets me every time. Ancient, ancient human intention. Got to write that down. <laughs> Got to write that down. Um, wow. I mean, there's something that you mentioned um, on your website, reflectance transformation imaging. Is that is that something that you're using to to find? Um, I think you referred to it as the first yeah. the first drafts for these. Um, objects of, of art? I mean, what is RTI <laughs> or how are we using it? Yeah. So, so I should step back and say a little bit, you know, like I think when people have an image of what a conservator looks like, we're often in, you know, a, like a white lab coat. Um, and maybe we have, you know, Q-tips or tiny little brushes in our hands and we're, you know, like cleaning things off of sculpture. I, I mean, you know, there are all of these kind of pictures and and we do do those things as well right or looking through a microscope those are all things we do um but you know to me um what i really look for is a combination of approaches to studying anything because you know and I guess the other thing that people think of is like you take a sample and you put it in some kind of machine <laughs> yes. and you get some answer about, you know, the history of the world, right? Like there's these really strange, like super scientific visions of who we are. Mm -hmm. But I think ultimately we are humanists at heart. At least that's how I see myself, right? I'm really interested in how does technology help us get closer to the ancient people um, who made these things or use these things. And so I always find that I'm trying for lots of different approaches to get at those, those people whose only trace probably is that thing that they made. Like we're not going to probably know their names. We don't know where they really lived, um, what their lives were like, but they're, they're preserved in the thing. Um, and so in order to get to that, you can do the kind of fancy you know, technology and you can just do, you know, look at something with your eyes or hold something with your, your hands. Um, but something like reflectance transformation imaging, I think, gets at what are some really accessible technologies that allow us to see better or look better. Um, and so reflectance transformation imaging is essentially a kind of photography. It's a relatively simple, low-tech photographic technique. But what it allows you to do is to kind of bring a lot of photos together um, in this um, uh, this platform that allows you to imagine light moving across the mm. surface when it's not really moving across the surface. It's a little hard to describe, but um, I can, of course, share some videos of what that looks like. But what it does is as this light kind of moves across the surface, and you've probably seen this, you know, even when you're sitting somewhere and light moves across, say, your room, you notice things differently, right? You're it's like catching on certain things and you're like, oh, I didn't notice that there was a little divot in that piece of furniture or whatever it is. So this technology allows you to look at surfaces at that kind of minute level. What's happening as the light moves around? And I use it primarily now to look at um, ancient ceramics that were made in Athens 
uh, between the 6th century BCE to the early 4th century BCE, so about 2,500 years ago. And you're probably familiar with some of these pots if you've ever been in a museum or you've seen photos of what, you know, quote unquote, what ancient Greece looked like. You've probably seen an Athenian pot, and these are either um, red figures on black surfaces or black colored figures on red surfaces. Um, and they're often incredibly detailed. You know, these they're pictures of epic myths and lots of figures. And I mean, they're just incredible. And if you look at them up close, I mean, they are painted with such precision. It's absolutely mind boggling. But you look at these things and you go, well, how did someone paint this very complicated picture on a pot? And then that pot went into a kiln and went up to a, a thousand degrees centigrade, right? Um, and so I've been looking at these drawings that are actually underneath the paintings because you can't just wing it. You really have to you like develop the picture to some extent before you start painting it. And um, so this RTI technology allows you to see all the ways in which people were basically figuring out what the picture was going to look like. And if you think about it, so here are people, you've got a wet pot, right? The pot has just been thrown on a wheel. Um, it's probably still kind of damp, but not mushy. Um, and you as the artist are thinking, okay, now I got to draw um, an Athena or whatever, right? And you are taking a tool of some kind, and we don't have any of these tools that have survived antiquity. So I'd love to know what they were actually working with. But, you know, we have these traces of people sketching out the image. Wow. And what you see is like way more lines of sketching than actually are painted in. And this has led, you know, I think some scholars to think, well, you know, they're just... It, this is not serious work. Like people did this all the time. So what's the big deal with all these sketches? We should pay more attention to the final finished painting and perhaps we should. But if you look at the sketches and you look at, you know, how people are talking about how we understand drawing now, what it does to your brain and your body as you're drawing, it's, it's actually the moment where creativity is happening in real time. <laughs> and you're just sitting there watching them like with this RTI imaging you are watching somebody's brain and body <laughs> make sense of what they're thinking in that moment. And ever since I, you know, kind of delved a little bit into this drawing literature, I can't unthink that because it's, it's real time. Someone kind of figuring out <sighs> what they're going to do on the surface. As a creative, I'm like, right. The drafts are where the story is made. Yes. Like, it's where it yes, comes to life. It's so absolutely. critical to understanding absolutely. the final product. You know what I mean? Absolutely. I mean, aren't you always wondering, like, how did you come up with the idea? What was the what were the paths you tried and then you abandoned? And then how did you refine it? I mean, to me, that is the most exciting part. I mean, the final product is amazing, of course. Right. Right. But I want to see the vulnerable parts where you had no idea what you were doing and you still kind of muddled through it i mean and, and that is you know that's the that is the mess of the human experience that i'm like <laughs> taking so much comfort in like you, there's a draft we were we're we're, we're 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 chopping away at this thing we're trying to articulate this idea round after round after round and you know here we are in 2021 trying to get this draft you know <laughs> trying to trying to do something with this draft you know <laughs> 
so much intimacy with these uh, with the do you feel a sense of intimacy with with these artists as you you know track through their process oh absolutely i mean i feel i've you know it's it's so weird like you just start to you start to recognize people right you're like oh there you are you know and it just sounds <laughs> bizarre to say out loud but it to me that's that's the real joy like you you suddenly are in the workshop and you kind of see this moment with someone I can never identify and um you know I think a lot of times these drawings have been really dismissed as well I mean whoever these people were they made thousands of these pots you know there's nothing creative necessarily about this in that they made thousands of these pots but I think you know, as again, as, as creative people, like every time you start something, even if you've done something similar, it's a mess. You're just, you go ah, through it again. <laughs> what am I yeah, going to do right. this time? Yeah. And, and I think what adds a, another level of, um, I guess, I don't know, my desire to be close to these people is the awareness that many of the people, we think many of the people making pots in ancient Athens at this time uh, were actually what um, people who are described as medics or resident aliens. So they're people who weren't Athenian citizens, but who actually, you know, came to Athens, paid a special tax in order to work there, and were clearly of much lower, um, you know, sort of certainly had no political power. To me, what adds this additional layer of fascination is because so many of these people are thought to be medics, these resident aliens, not true Athenians, weren't given that kind of political standing, um, making these pots. To me, I'm even more fascinated, right. right? What were they, what were they thinking? And how do we get at their experiences right. of this world? I mean, this leads me to my next question is, um, I would love to hear more about the nonprofit organization that you work with, Untold Stories, because are you, is is the, is the organization an extension of this quest to find more about these artists? Or? Yeah, so, I mean, really Untold Stories came about, um, so I founded it in 2017, um, really as a more kind of outward-facing um, organization, because a lot of, like, a lot of the work that I think we do as conservators stays very kind of insular to us, right? These strange esoteric insights <laughs> that, that, you know, I, I think are fascinating, but perhaps more people in the world aren't necessarily that excited about. Um, but to me, what was really concerning, and this is something that I've felt in the field for a long time, in the field of really preservation and, and cultural heritage more generally, is that the way the field is set up really leaves out a lot of people. Um, I think too many people think of cultural heritage as something that lives in museums or in big fancy monuments. And really cultural heritage is what we all have, right? We are all kind of raised in our own heritages. Right. And we all have ways that we learned to preserve our histories through, you know, stories, through objects that we care for, um, and that that we pass on as a way of, you know, staying connect connected to our lineages and, you know, giving ourselves a sense of strength and, and place in the world. And unfortunately, so much of the museum world is really disconnected from that very kind of intimate kind of community centric work. 
And I needed a place to talk to people outside the museum field who kind of understood the museum field, who could offer um, ways to make those connections again. Uh, because to me, the real possibility, the real promise of museums and the kinds of work that we do is to, to link again, right? Communities and things and histories in ways that are really enriching and revitalizing. Um, and to, I mean, we can never reverse, I think, the, the pain and the, the horror of the kind of colonial work that went into making museums, but we can repair. And I, you know, I'm a repairer by training. That's mm. what a conservator does. We repair work. Um, but we also need to repair relationships. I mean, to me, that is, that's the hardest work we have in front of us. Um, but, but that to me is why we should exist. So Untold Stories was a way to speak and really speak specifically to um, BIPOC people who are doing this work in really powerful community-centric ways. Um, because the museum field is so, um, it's, it's really kind of um, invested in a lot of white scholarship and leadership. And that, I think, really needs to change. Which is so, it's just so, it's so important to really think about conservation is going beyond the walls of these institutions and um I love the idea of 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 your work complicating these narratives as you include more you know what I mean as you repair what has been breached which is thinking about the just thinking about recent events I'm like yes repairing healing, reconnecting, all that stuff is going to be crucial, you know, if we intend to survive. Well, and I think just, you know, asking people what, what they need. I mean, it just seems so basic. <laughs> you know, what, what, what do you need? What do you as a community member in Place X need in order to feel like we value your past, your present, and your future, right? Like it's it's really about saying we we care about this kind of longevity of yes. who you are and where you came from and who you know your your future kind of descendants will be. Um, and I think this is all the more crucial at a time where it feels like we're we're fighting, we're literally fighting each other, right? For whose history gets to be taken seriously and the thing is we, I mean everybody's history needs to be taken seriously we wouldn't be in this place of having to kind of fight for space if we could all acknowledge that everybody is valid like everybody has this you know powerful role to play in our society um, but the, I mean I think this is where certainly museums need to really step up and and take a look at their collections and say, well, whose histories have we said we care about? And whose histories mm. have we not said we care about? And I think this also gets to, you know, how we collect objects and, and kind of elevate them to being important, you know, because who, who gets to have fancy stuff or get their names written down, right? And, and this is where I think a lot of the approaches that I tend to take as a conservator, which are much more experimental or certainly interdisciplinary is because because of the gaps in in terms of whose histories 
do not get told or are erased or not bothered to be collected because they're not seen as essential to telling the history of place X or time X. Um, and so, you know, we, we need to, we need to be more curious about all those other people who were there who did not get to leave the same kind of trace because obviously those places existed because of their, their labor, their ingenuity, their, you know, expertise and, and their real humanness. So how do we get at that? Um, if we're not willing to be more experimental. Absolutely. And I mean, I feel like this guides my work as a theater maker. It's like, how are we going to re-engage? How are we going to deepen our connection to understanding of and desire to love, support, and protect, you know? And, it, and how can we include this, this love in our, in our concept of leadership? You know what I mean? How can we combine the two? Which, which makes me think of the virago that we're focusing on for this episode. Yeah. Which is Admiral Komalayahati, who also had an, a village full of widows who became an army um, with her in preservation of their culture up against the spice trade that was starting to happen in that region. And recently I've, I've thought a lot about well, where does nurture and caregiving and love and compassion and listening are these leadership skills you know and i can see evidence of them being so from from stories like yeah. the admiral so i mean what, what had you ever heard of 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 the admiral before were you familiar with her i was not but i mean to be honest when i when i started listening to the piece i thought well that doesn't surprise me <laughs> you know because i mean Perhaps you've experienced this too. I mean, I, I come from a long line of women who just got the work done, right? Yeah. This is the, like, this is the situation. We're going to get the work done. Yeah. Um, and we're going to do it in a way that protects people who need it. Mm -hmm. And so in that sense, I, that was a very, I mean, I, that really resonated with me. And I think the other thing that I was really taken with was, I mean, she's a technical specialist and a strategist, you know, I, I mean, she can, she can manage the waters and, you know, warfare on water. I mean, to me that I, I, I just love the idea of a very sort of technically minded woman who's also extremely strategic and knows exactly how to get things done. Because again, these are qualities I recognize in a lot of the women I admire. It's just not something that is necessarily seen as, you know, womanly, whatever that means. Whatever that um, means, right. <laughs> right. 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 Why can't you be nicer? Why don't you smile more? No, I don't want to smile more. I want to tell you exactly how we should do this because I'm I'm an extremely competent person. Yes. <laughs> Yes, that's less smiling and more getting the work done. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, well, and I think the other thing that kind of came to mind, right, is leadership without exploitation. Right. Right. Um, because, because it seems to me, you know, the way, and, and this has bothered me, I think, about academia and I would say archaeology more generally for a long time. And, you know, I'm certainly not alone in this, but the idea that somehow knowledge and um, kind of a, awareness of, of what, you, what you should know 
um, requires taking that information without asking permission appropriately, right? Like the, there, there needs to be a way of acknowledging the knowledges that other people have without simply kind of taking it for your own. And I think the, the place where this comes to mind to me a lot, and I used to, you know, work on field excavations, and some of the places that I worked, we were excavating, you know, funerary um, spaces, and and probably everyone who's into archaeology has seen those photos, right, of those those graves that are opened up, and there's that individual there with all the grave goods, and I mean, to be fair, those are incredibly, um, you know, they're they're tantalizing images on on one you know, on one level, but, you know, that's, that's somebody's family member there, right? Like that, right. That, that person did not give us consent to do that. And I think this is where, where I find myself constantly kind of coming up against what I was taught that, you know, the, the desire for knowledge, the way that one gets knowledge um, means that you're allowed to do things that as a human being, you might not agree with. And this is a real challenge for, um, I think, museum professionals, archaeologists, any of us really in kind of, quote unquote, knowledge production, right? Do you have the right to be investigating th these things? And have you really thought about the methodology that you're using? And, and for me, some of the hardest lessons I've learned, and I'm, I learned them, I would say, almost like on a weekly basis is realizing that things that I thought were reasonable professional practice are really rooted in a kind of exploitative um, paradigm and changing those means really changing the way that I work. And it's, it's hard to own up to when you know, oh, I could get this other cool thing. I could get this other cool bit of information, but is it right to do that, right? So thinking about your, your ethical responsibility as a researcher, that, that is tricky when you want to be an ethical human being. And and for them to kind of be at odds in some ways. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure that is a, that's a real dance. I definitely have been thinking in the process of creating my own work and creating collectives and working with other people in collaboration, how to do that outside of the realm of exploitation, you know, how to do that in a way that is respectful of where all these ideas come from, how to credit people, how to compensate them, how to um, just sustainably create work in a way that generates vitality for the community that it comes from, you know what I mean? Recognizing that it's coming from, from a community and honoring that. And that is now, as I venture into creating my own projects and doing more of my own work, it is something that I, I'm trying to hold as, you said it earlier, I'm trying to hold it as an extremely joyful responsibility of like, how, how can we do this without exploitation? Is there a new way to lead? Is there a new way to be in relationship with communities, knowledge, information, how this information is being shared? Because I also wonder if people do not feel rooted in and connected to these cultural institutions, then wouldn't they wither by the wayside because people would not feel invest they wouldn't feel like this is something I should defend or yeah. this is something that I should protect as a as a culture you know what I mean because they didn't feel invited they didn't feel there was a place there for them to begin with so it kind of puts everything at risk I mean I think the the conditions around you know whether people feel connected or not 
to something are really important to interrogate. I mean, it's sort of like your, you know, your reaction to, you know, Greek, ancient Greek theater, um, you have a different relationship to it, even though it has these really problematic, you know, ways in it in which it's been deployed. Um, You can still feel connected to it and feel the need to protect it as a kind of cultural artifact or an art form. And I think that's true for so many different, you know, kinds of archives or collections, you know, I, for example, I think there's been a huge uproar over, of course, Confederate monuments. And I think I don't necessarily want them standing in public spaces and kind of peering down on people and upholding a particular kind of history that is really, I mean, it's wrong. Um, but I would never want those sculptures destroyed, right? I need the, I need the physical evidence right? But I need it in a way that can, again, allow for conversation to begin that offers the hope of potential repair. And it's going to be messy. I mean, I'm not kind of disillusioned necessarily that, um, you know, we could, we could fix this somehow, but we have to have the the conversation and it's going to be horrible. (laughs) And we have to let the, the right people kind of steward that relationship as well, right? It can't be from the perspective of people who feel like it is their right to always have, you know, say, for example, the Tanny Monument, which here in Baltimore, you know, here's this man who said Black people were not the actual equivalent of white people. Like, he does not need to be in a public square, but I also think a certain person has to be able to start that conversation who's not invested in that history, but to interrogate it, I think we, we, ha- we owe it to ourselves as a society to really delve into the things that make it really hard for us to see each other. Um, but, you know, I, in some ways, that's, that's the point of making art, isn't it? <laughs> to, to force you into it. Right. Right. <laughs> but I also think we can't, you know, we can't live in a place of... Um, hopelessness and the sense of you know all of the horrible things that have happened and that that kind of trauma you know because people have survived too much of it and the fact that they've survived is not necessarily celebrated in the way that it should be and 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 frankly to always be burdened by that trauma and having to kind of work through it that's not fair to (laughs) that's not fair to people right Right. The resiliency and what we built and how we responded, you know, like this moment in, in, in U.S. history is so crucial to me personally because I'm seeing, oh, this must have been what it, when I read moments from history books, this is what, what it must have been like in that time to know that, you know, the, the pharmacist down the street from me was who got the vaccinations out and this person, my next door neighbor, and being able to have a sense of, of what happened and feel a place of belonging in that is such a, it's such a powerful part of the resiliency you know that we we were here we did this we loved each other we 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 protected one another and this is how we did that is um truly 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 inspiring truly inspiring and we we have done it we're doing it we can do it again we can 
survive, you know, and bounce back. And in the process of bouncing back, there's new culture, material culture, you know, there's new art, there's new platforms of connecting and we will find our way back, you know, in the midst or from, from, from this is my hope. I mean, I think this is where I've been reading a lot of um, indigenous scholarship um, and really black feminist scholarship. And I think this is what, um, I mean, it's kind of mind boggling, you know, how generous people can continue to be beyond, you know, any kind of expectation that you would have for people. Um, But I think that that has to be the hope that we hold on to, because with without that sense of resilience and, you know, the the term that I think a lot of indigenous scholars use is survivance. Right. It's not just about surviving. It's really Mm -hmm. about continuing to thrive and to say we're still here. We're still doing these things um, despite it all. And and frankly, you know, we. (laughs) we are, we are just ourselves. Right. Um, and I, I think yeah. that, that to me is always something that I look for because there are just so many times where you think, well, what is the point? I'm just one person. I'm just, you know, doing this job or whatever it is, this project, this creative work, what does it even matter? And I, I think this is where, you know, the, the indigenous idea of like thinking ahead seven lifetimes, right. To, to me, the first time I heard that, I thought, well, that's, I mean, that's exhausting, right? But but I have seen it play out just in, you know, visiting archives myself. And, and there it is, you know, maybe not seven generations later, but 70 years later, there it is, just waiting for someone to find it who needed to see that. And I think that that is what I, what I kind of hope for for my work, that you know, whatever I will have done, I hope, um, in the most ethical manner. And, and when I screw up, I hope that I have the courage to say, I really, I really got it wrong. I'm sorry. Um, but I hope that at the end of this work, that some person in the future will find it and say, I needed that. Right. And I can't put a metric on it, but, but I, I just feel like it, it, it will come back. It's, it's in the ether. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I think, I think so. I think so, in a big way. I mean, is there a Virago from history or, or contemporary time who you'd want to hang out with? Yes, I have. I even have a picture of her. Um, so I'll show you the picture. So this is her. Um, so this is a woman painting a pot. And this is a pot dated to between 470 and 450 BCE. And she's the only, she's the only woman we have... Um, working on a pot in ancient Athens, everybody else, they're all males. And they're not really very many pictures of uh, women working, uh, people working, making pots in general. Um, But this is the only woman we have working on a pot. And the scholarship really, you know, kind of talks about her um, sort of like, well, she's the, she's the wife of the, you know, the owner of the shop. She's, and she's not doing anything particularly important. She's just kind of painting. They say she's just painting the, the pot, not, not with pictures, but with slip, just covering it over. Um, and I, I would love to just have a few minutes talking to this woman because the rest of the pot, which I'm not showing you actually, um, has all of these goddesses, including the goddess Athena herself coming down and placing wreaths on um, the men who are painting in this workshop, but she does not get one. 
Um, but she's still sitting here quietly in the corner working. And the assumption has been, um, at least in some of the scholarship, that she's, you know, to the side. She's not she's not doing anything particularly important, but she's there. And I just wonder, is that really the story here? Because, right. you know, she's look at her. She's she's quite well dressed. She has her hair back. She's sitting on a really nice um, uh, woven and dyed textile in a potter shop. That's pretty odd, right? Um, yeah. But I just I just want to know. So what what's the deal here? <laughs> what are you actually doing? And that Athena is depicted on mm-hmm. this. And this is this pot was made, you know, at exactly the time when Athens is instituting all of these laws that are limiting, um, you know, f- these foreign workers from having political power and kind of agency in the city. Wow. And so you just wonder if she's one of these, you know, resident aliens who's working and we have a special tax category for foreign residents where women who are working in the city, is she one of these people? And what is her life like? Because we know, you know, from there's an amazing um, book by um, a a scholar named Rebecca Futo Kennedy, who's been really looking into like, what are these women's lives like? And they're difficult because they have no political power. They're constantly under kind of physical threat. Um, There are all these ways in which they're, you know, they're really in, you know, in danger of all kinds of things. Very vulnerable. Extremely. And so I just, I just really want to have a chat with this woman and say, so so how are you? How are you doing? Like, what are you doing here? Right? How are you dealing with this? What is sustaining you? How are you dealing with this? And, right. and, and of course, she's next to an empty pot. And I just, I would love to, you know, be sitting there saying, "Are you making a drawing? Are you planning something here? You know, like, let me into your process." Um, but <sighs> you know, maybe I'll meet her someday in the afterlife. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. I'm sure that is. That is really, whew, I love it. I love it. I'm really glad that I um, decided to make this <laughs> podcast. <laughs> it's like, it's given me life. It, it, it is helping me with my survivance in a, in a real way. We all <laughs> need it. We need way. it. <laughs> um, okay. So th- thank you. Thank you, Sanchita, for generously agreeing to speak with me this afternoon. Um, great thanks and gratitude for your ideas, your work, the time that you have put into this, your, the, the legacy that you have um, shared with, with us this afternoon or wh- whenever <laughs> people are listening to this. I can't thank you Thank enough. you for having I, me. I cannot thank it's, you it's, it's really a joy. It's been such a joy. <laughs> Um, thanks to everyone for listening to another episode of Vanguard of the Viragos this conversation and more resources will be on the audio podcast and website this is a whole world y'all so check us out and always remember we are all on the vanguard of a changing time be the difference lead with love
Well, that last one didn't sound too curious.